thank you. Uh, in view of the constraints of time, I will try to restrict my remarks to about five minutes. Uh, on uh, at the stroke of midnight of May 19, uh, the Secretary General of the UN uh, transferred sovereignty from the United Nations Transition Administration to our elected president, Shanana Guzman. Our independent celebrations in East Timor were attended by 91 delegations from uh, all over the world, including uh, President George W. Bush, uh, who was represented by President uh, Clinton, and uh, unavoidably, inevitably, he became the star of the, of the event. And uh, I was escorting him. At one point, I gave up trying to uh, control people because everybody wanted to take pictures with him. So I told the president, I'm giving up. And uh, <coughs> it was also attended by, uh, significantly by the president of Indonesia, Mrs. Megawati Sukarno Putri. If you look at the context of our history with Indonesia, the past 25 years, and particularly the violence that occurred in 99, when our people went to the polls, vote massively for independence, and the country was thoroughly destroyed. 80% of infrastructures were destroyed. I went back a few months later after 24 years in exile. I arrived on December 1st, 99. And what I saw was uh, reminded me of Hiroshima, of Dresden, of London after World War II, from the black and white pictures that I was accustomed to, to see. Two and a half years later, the, our flag went up and the UN flag went down. It was an, a remarkable recovery under the leadership of uh, the Secretary of the UN and his special representative, Mr. Serge Vieira de Mello. It has now been considered a, the greatest success story of uh, the UN. That again was unprecedented in the sense that uh, never before the UN was called to manage an entire country, to set up an administration, in institutions, uh, peacekeeping, and uh, so on. But as I told the UN Security Council in New York many times, while we expect the UN to assist us in ensuring peace and security, be it in East Timor or anywhere in the world, primary responsibility for peace and security in a given country rests with the people themselves, rests with ourselves. Because if the people concerned in a given country do not, are not able to reconcile, are not able to work out their differences, then there is no amount of peacekeeping or peace enforcement is able to restore peace to the country. I appeal to the UN to do their share, and I promise them that we would do our own share in bringing about national reconciliation, rapprochement with Indonesia. And we have achieved that so far. The Constituent Assembly elections, August last year, involving 16 political parties, went without one single incident and with a participation of more than 90% of the people. And our people, although it's predominantly Catholic, 98% devout Catholic, patriarchal, conservative, elected 30% women to the parliament, the highest number, I think, of anywhere in the world, with the exception of the Nordic countries. 
the average in the European Union is 18%. And even though, as I said, it's 98% devout Catholic, our first first prime minister in the history of the country is a Muslim. And Muslims in East Timor are no more than about 1,000 people of Yemen descent who came to East Timor hundreds of years ago. The presidential elections went took place in April, again smoothly, without one single incident, with the involvement of uh, 12 parties and two candidates. The second candidate, we actually had to persuade him to run against the first candidate, who is Mr. Shannon Guzman, who won with 82% of uh, the votes. The challenges ahead, challenges that are very typical of many poor developing countries. How to overcome poverty, to create jobs, to eradicate malaria, which is rampant in our country. We must be one of the most fortunate countries in the world that we don't have a landmine problems. And HIV must be one of the lowest. It's zero point, less than 0.6%. But malaria is rampant. TB is rampant. Most schools still don't, don't have uh, desks, chairs, and so on. And these are beyond the dreams, the proclamations of independence. These are the challenges. The UN must be credited for what has been achieved. And if the Timor experience can provide a lesson, then it is the lesson is that uh, the international community should not abandon multilateralism in addressing conflicts in the world, that the international community should not shy away from uh, supporting nation building when, where necessary. The case of East Timor strengthen those who favor multilateralism and nation building. There are some voices in some quarters around the world that uh, do not wish the UN to be involved in nation building. But in the case of East Timor, like in many other situations, like Sierra Leone, where the concept of nation state is almost non-existence, it is vital for peace and security in the long run that the international community help in nation building, in creating democratic institutions, national parliament, independent judiciary, helping with the free independent media, and so on. The presence of President Megawati Sukarnaputri at our independence celebrations, along with many others, but her particular presence was very much warmly welcomed by our people. A journalist asked me a few days ago in my office in Dili why your people so warmly welcome the President of Indonesia. I had friends who phoned from Kosovo, from the UN mission in Kosovo, because there some Kosovars were puzzled with the reception that they saw we accorded uh, to the President of Indonesia. I conclude my remarks with only the following points, and that is, for 24 years in our struggle, we did have armed resistance, besides cultural resistance, political resistance. Never once, one single Indonesian civilian life was lost. We had 200,000 Indonesian migrants in our country who took over the best land and the best jobs, and not one single Indonesian civilian was ever touched. I would not be in the resistance, I would not be today, if ever our movement shows the path of using violence against civilians. And never once in 24 years of our history, 
you would find in our literature, interviews, public statements, demonizing the Indonesians as a people, or manipulating religion, that because we are Catholics, the world should support us, the Christian world should support us against Muslims, Indonesians. Because we also said that the conflict in Timor was never a religious one, because the dictatorship in Indonesia actually never discriminated. When it came to violence, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Catholics, they all knew their share of violence. We could never accuse Suharto of Indonesia of discriminating against anyone. You just have to be against him, whether you're Muslim or whether you're Christian. And it's because of that that it was so easy for our people to understand that we have to look at Indonesia with different eyes. Indonesian people also suffered repression for 32 years under Suharto dictatorship. And that's why Megawatsu Karnaputri was very much welcome in our country. And that's why sometimes I cannot comprehend when I read in the media so much hatred in some regions of the world. I will not mention names because I do not wish to have the pretense of lecturing anyone else. But I was shocked one day. I was traveling from Paris to Washington. I pick up Le Monde and I read a story, dateline somewhere in the Middle East. I could not believe my eyes the demonizing by one group against another in the Middle East. When a group of people, no matter how legitimate your grievances are, no matter how profound they are, if you resort to brutality, if you resort to indiscriminate violence in the persecution of your cause, I wonder what future you are preparing for your country, for your society. As I said earlier, I would not be part of my country, I would not be part of my movement, if ever our movement had deviated from that principle. No touching of the civilians, no demonizing other human beings, no matter who they are, where they are. And, <clears throat> the sides in the Middle East and elsewhere must have the courage to say enough is enough. You cannot go on hating each other. You cannot go on using violence on each other. You perpetuate a situation of hatred or violence, and to what end? So that in 20 years from now, you realize that, yes, you can live in peace. 20 years that were wasted. Well, I hope, as I said, I do not wish to lecture anyone, but uh, just as a human being, that is our experience. We have many Indonesians now coming back, living in our country. We are very poor, one of the poorest countries in the world, but we already have in some illegal migrants. We have more than 1,000 illegal migrants. I found a Palestinian there, an Afghan, uh, a Russian family, a couple and several kids. Uh, they found East Timor uh, somehow. And uh, I, had to, I had to convince my parliament the other day to ratify the refugee convention. They said, no, if we ratify, everybody will want to come. I said, listen, don't worry. I don't think, 
I don't think an, an, Afghan, an, an Afghan is sitting there waiting for Istimo to ratify the convention for him to come. And I don't think Istimo is exactly a place a Palestinian Afghan is looking for if they want to leave the country. My point was only, we were a refugee country, we are helped by many, we owe it to the rest of the world to ratify not only the Refugee Convention, but all the other human rights instruments. I thank you and God bless you. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with us how you deal with fear, either for yourself or for people who depend upon you. Well, uh, it is a very, very difficult question. I, I'm always very scared of traveling by plane, for instance. <laughs> when I travel, I, the plane starts shaking, I look at this. Stewardess. If she's smiling, if she goes on, I say, well, maybe there's no problem. <laughs> uh, but uh, on the other hand, when I face uh, physical situations on the ground, uh, I don't know, something else take over. I can be absolutely, absolutely in control, calm. And I have been in this situation before, handling riots. My own security was totally scared. I had Brazilian security you know, from the UN, young people in their early 20s. They told me, please put on uh, the bulletproof vest. You know, I tried, it was very heavy, very thick. I said, no, I'm not using this. And uh, you just confront the challenge and uh, disarm the people, disarm in terms of uh, with words and so on. So it depends. Anyway, so I, I cannot really explain. Sometimes I'm totally scared when I travel. But when you face a real challenge on the ground, something else takes over. I think it's very much come from inside, I don't know. My name is Elizabeth Young, and I study at the University of Oxford. In the beginning of your talk, you talked about state sovereignty. And towards the end, you were talking about the focus on human rights. And there's a lot of talk as of late about how human rights can um, undermine state sovereignty, uh, as in the case of the intervention in Kosovo, which was justified largely on human rights reasons, but did undermine state sovereignty. And I was wondering what you thought about developments in terms of the relationship between human rights on the one hand and traditional concepts of sovereignty on the other. Well, uh, in 1998, when the Kosovo case uh, came, up, came, up, came about, uh, I wrote uh, an article for uh, the International Herald Tribune, an opinion piece. Uh, at the time, castigating uh, the NATO countries for not intervening in East Timor. I did not mean intervening militarily, but doing something to end uh, the occupation. But at the same time, I said, regardless of their sins in regard to our own situation, a greatest sin should not happen uh, in regard to Kosovo. And I supported publicly endorsed NATO intervention in Kosovo. Because, and I asked the question, should Europe have stood by while the Holocaust took place in the 30s and 40s? It was already wrong that the international community did not do anything on the Cambodian genocide in the 70s, or the Ugandan genocide under Idi Amin, or Rwanda. You know. So I, against evil, sometimes we cannot but uh, endorse the use of force. 
if the use of force infringes upon state sovereignty, well, be it because the responsibility of the state is to protect its citizens, to provide its citizens with human rights, with dignity. If the state fails that, it cannot invoke state sovereignty. So uh, I think uh, things are not black and white, you, and I don't think we can generalize. The world must address an issue as they appear, case by case, the merits of a case. Kosovo, I supported it, a friend of mine from Kosovo, a pacifist, a journalist also, and he said when he saw the first NATO bombs fell on Kosovo, he was there at the time, he, he said, God bless NATO. Uh, I probably would have done the same if I were in my country, suddenly a NATO bomb fell on uh, the enemy troops. I said, God bless NATO. Depends on each side, you know. It's a very, very difficult, morally, uh, I say, difficult to, to justify the use of force. But sometimes you cannot avoid it. Avoiding the use of force for the sake of state sovereignty or for the sake of non-interference is uh, abandoning a people to genocide. It happened with in the Holocaust, the Jews, in the 30s and 40s. Why? the rest of the world reacted only so late, why six million Jews had to die, and the gypsies, you know, in Europe. So uh, anyway, my, that's my answer. Thank you.